Alright, howdy all you wonderful people. Welcome to Ex-Mormon Rhetoric. This is a podcast where I talk about mainly Mormon rhetoric and respond to it and go on from there. Today I'm looking at a talk by Ezra Benson, The 14 Fundamentals of the True Church. I was born in 1984, four years after this talk was given, but much of what is established in this talk defined the Mormon church that I grew up in. Uh, similarly, how the teachings of Bruce R. McConkie and Mark E. Peterson and Spencer W. Kimball very much shaped my version of Mormonism uh, up until I was... 12 or 13 and Gordon B. Hinckley became the prophet, uh, then he very much, his administration very much shaped uh, my understanding of Mormonism. Granted, we will get into that as I critique this specific talk. So point number one by Ezra is, quote, the prophet is the only man who speaks for the Lord in everything. And I guess as a side note, later in this section, he emphasizes like it's in the same, like under the same point. Uh, it's a paragraph or two later, though. He emphasizes, we are to give heed to all of his words as if from the Lord's own mouth. And because of this, while growing up in the Mormon church, I believe that the words of the current prophet were literally modern scripture. I was told that exact thing. So whether spoken at conference or written in one or several monthly church magazines, I, and I imagine most members of the church, considered the words of the modern day prophet to be the words of God. Nowadays, I feel that Mormonism has shifted to allow for more personal revelation to carry weight among the members. Granted, from conference talk to conference talk, that sometimes seems to change. Um, but that is the way of the Mormon church. Another quote is, the living prophet is more important than the standard works. And I believe that's point number two. Ezra supports this idea when he quotes Brigham Young. And the Brigham Young quote, quote goes as follows. When compared with the living oracles, those books mean nothing to me. This point simply reiterates that second point that Benson makes and reinforces the first point as well. But this idea of a living oracle, like that verbiage or that uh, precise description deserves more scrutiny, in my opinion. It is such an unusual description of modern prophets. Uh, it's very similar, I suppose, to the Sherry Dew talk that, that prophets see around corners. Uh, it is such an unusual description of modern-day prophets because it paints a picture of a prophet as one that can tell the future. This notion is not reflected in the actions nor the words of Mormon prophets at all. 
I think the only prophet that you could attribute that title of oracle to that believing members would agree with would be Joseph Smith. And maybe the only prophecy that I can think of that would fit that description is predicting the Civil War. But even as early as 1830, many people in the public eye and government officials were predicting some type of civil war. And that was decades before it actually happened. So Joseph's quote-unquote prophecy there uh, was not that and was already an idea that uh, was taking shape and had been for years by the time he made that supposed prophecy. Uh, At the same time, this point reminds me of an experience that occurred early on in my mission for the Mormon Church, in which an eager uh, young investigator who was thrilled by the idea of a modern-day prophet was immediately let down when he asked my companion and myself, what are his prophecies? Asking like, okay, you all have a modern prophet, what are his prophecies? To which we were a bit dumbfounded once we understood the question, because like we went to uh, the Living Christ document and the Family Proclamation to the World, and realizing what he meant by prophecy, we understood kind of sheepishly as we stared at each other, there simply aren't any. There were no prophecies made by the current prophet at the time, which then was Gorn B. Hinckley, and none came to mind regarding any of the modern prophets outside of Joseph Smith and the example I already gave. And any other prophecies that Smith made, many have been shown to be falsifiable uh, by this point. The bottom line is that I began to realize then, as a missionary, uh, and now, obviously, that Mormon prophets in no way live up to that self-appointed moniker. Like, they're just, to say you're a prophet and then not have any prophecies is a farce. It's a lie. Point being, the prophets within the Mormon church have never functioned as oracles. Further, I'm under the impression that Mormons put more emphasis on the Book of Mormon than the living prophet. And I'm talking about members of the church generally, um, especially with how frequently prophets uh, challenge members to read the entire Book of Mormon, either as a yearly challenge or uh, before the end of the year based on maybe an October or April conference and going from there. And members are also encouraged by local leaders to focus on their testimony of Jesus, Joseph Smith, and the Book of Mormon. And so there's not regularly emphasis on the words of the modern-day prophet. However, I say that, um, I know sacrament meetings tend to focus more recently on conference talks so as to reiterate those words. But honestly, that's just a form of indoctrination, right? You're not establishing any prophecies. You're just repeating what the leaders have said and having the members put it in their own words and creating a feedback loop within the members' minds where they 
continue to hear the conference messages over and over again for six months until another conference has started. Um, I lost my place a little bit. Oh, that's right. I did want to mention that, I mean, that focus on conference talks, I feel is a more recent thing, but at the same time, like, as I look back, I'm like, when did that shift? Um, cause as a youth, I remember conference talks that dealt with like the blacks getting the priesthood and other things like that. So it, I mean, I understand that Sunday talks for the most part as as I understand it, right? That's up to the bishop's discretion. And I thought that he decided how that went. And so I'm a little curious, this habit of just sort of regurgitating conference talks, where that came in, if that's a church directive, when that all started. Um, if anyone knows, please let me know. That'd be fascinating information for sure. Um, and so I believe the idea of, of doing conference talks as sacrament meeting talks happened before Nelson's administration, but I, I definitely noticed it um, once... President Nelson was deemed the prophet of the Mormon church. And so that has been its own wild ride, as it were. Uh, Ezra's next point, the living prophet is more important to us than a dead one. Uh, and I feel like this was emphasized back in uh, April's general conference where I think one of the 70s mentioned that um, the words of past prophets don't gain value over time. Uh, this isn't quite the same idea, but I feel this is similar and in the same vein. Uh, here, Ezra goes on to say, therefore the most important prophet, so far as you and I are concerned, is the one living in our day and age to whom the Lord is currently revealing his will to us. This point seems fairly straightforward and obvious for believing members, except that Mormon prophets are old. They usually don't have a lot of years being the prophet. Within a brief 12 years, I had outlived three other Mormon prophets. Spencer Kimball died when I was one, Ezra Benson died when I was 10. Hunter, Howard Hunter died when I was 11. And then President Hinckley was prophet for over a decade. The idea that we need to follow the one prophet during our day and age gets complicated when modern Mormon prophets don't always have long administrations. And also when modern Mormon prophets don't agree with each other or straight up contradict each other. When I receive the priesthood at age 12, as fake as all that is, but it was a thing that happened. In 1996, Gornby Hinckley was the prophet. Hinckley was significant to me because he was the prophet during all my formative years, from 1995 to 2008, from age 11 to age 24. From the first priesthood session till we were expecting our first child, 
This one group of old men guided my life and the lives of millions of Mormons for over a decade. To not sound too disrespectful, as a youth in the Mormon church, I had the names of all those apostles during the Hinckley administration memorized. I very much look forward to the general uh, conferences where we listen to talks given by those supposed prophets, seers, and revelators. I eagerly anticipated listening to the intellectual insights of Maxwell. I was constantly in preparation to hear the wisdom of Hay and Packer. I look forward to the passion that Scott brought to many of his talks. Uh, and it was usually a delight to witness the analogies and stories that Monson, Faust, and Hinckley all told. And Gordon was like a kindly grandfather, not only in his appearance and his pleasantness, but his cadence when speaking. And, you know, as silly as it is to admit, Mormons essentially worship these men. And so I felt cared and loved for by them because I felt like their messages were personal to me, besides the fact that they're obviously addressing a huge audience of millions of people. Gordon, in particular, seemed to be so focused on joy and levity at times, I thought that they were men of God. But in reality, they were simply peddling promises and stories from a time far past that I do genuinely believe that they, along with many other Mormons, have complete faith in. Like, I don't think that they're lying and trying to pull the wool over everyone. I think they also fell for Smith's con. Uh, granted, I, I see it as uh, just being victims of some many generational childhood indoctrination uh, that is challenging to break as I continue to experience. Uh, and as much as I revere Hinckley and the men at that time, th that reverence has definitely fallen away. Um, especially with an understanding of the Enzyme Peak Fund and that they started it and that they put all those measures in place and that they're responsible for a lot of the church cover-up policies that we're seeing now with uh, child sexual abuse and abuse in general in the church, that they established many of those policies that are now becoming uncovered at this point. And it is truly uh, leaving a high-demand religion is kind of continuously heartbreaking and that Right, I have to mourn these men that I literally worshipped and revered every word, and now I realize that they supported lies and they supported, maybe not fully aware of it, but they supported harm towards children. And uh, whether that was in the scout program or within the church itself, like they were backing those programs, and it. <sighs> It sickens me now, and it's also continually difficult to deal with and address. 
but it's all evidence that faith is not a useful tool when addressing the honesty of reality. Instead, it is a mask to hide from the harsh truth of reality, which I now am trying very hard to bask in. Uh, Not thinking like a Mormon has proven to be its own challenges. Despite the fact that I no longer believe that any of these men, nor the ones that have replaced them, have any authority in the offices that they claim to hold, um, I recognize that favorable bias that I had towards them in my young adult years. I remain convinced that current church members, just sort of as a a caveat, right? I understand that current TBMs still keep up with modern prophets and apostles, and they believe it, and I get why. And as they continue to connect with them through General Conference and church magazines and all the ways that you can identify with such leaders. Anyway, I I guess I say all that just to say that I, I get it. I understand. I remember. Like, I don't think anyone's stupid for believing it because I understand there's way more to it than that. And yet the once every six months conference talks are not enough for these guys. And the having it repeated in local wards is not enough. They, They still go to any of the BYU campuses and they give devotionals and they do frequent face-to-face events with the youth and they have speaking engagements and they write books which by the way are like several of those things is also making them additional money on the sides and due to social media apostles are probably more available and more personal for members of the Mormon church than they ever have been But at the same time, all they're doing is reinforcing the ideas to follow and obey and crave new direction from Mormon leadership by the members. Next point by Ezra Benson, just to get back to what the purpose of uh, today's episode is. And I don't even remember what point we're on. I think it's four. The prophet will never lead the church astray. He goes on to say, If the prophet ever tells you to do anything and it is wrong and you do it, the Lord will bless you for it. And now I feel that there is a contradiction here within these two quotes. Because to me it sounds as if the prophet of the Mormon church might ask members to do the wrong thing, yet somehow... This is not seen as leading the Mormon church astray. This is a confusing quote only because I am focused on the wrong thing according to the Mormon perspective. What Ezra would like his audience to focus on is obedience, unquestioning faithful obedience. His next point is, the prophet is not required to have any earthly training or or credentials to speak on any subject or act in any matter at any time. Leaving Mormonism and looking around at what else is available in the world as far as religion is concerned has led me to understand that Mormon leadership 
is grossly unqualified to be actual faith leaders. A majority of religions require both religious and educational training, as well as additional certifications from outside institutions before they can be in a position of trust. Mormon leaders are called to similar positions with little more than a prayer and a few interviews. So not only is the spiritual authority of Mormon leaders not real, remember, the priesthood isn't real, but any actual training in regards to counseling or how to conduct themselves regarding appropriateness is not required and frequently non-existent. I understand that that has changed to an extent in recent years, and part of that is in great deal thanks to the Boy Scouts of America program and the changes they made before the church separated ties with them. And that's good, right? Step in the right direction. But we're still having adults alone with children in interviews unless the parents step in and either say no or make themselves present in those interviews. Point being... The problem still exists. This is this specific aspect of Mormonism seems to function under the Dunning-Kruger effect. The lack of official theological training allows for some false confidence that is supported solely based on the beliefs of those within Mormonism that those people that are called to those positions have authority, and there is little that can be said to change their mind. And that's very frustrating. Ezra shares a quote from DNC 21.4, The prophet does not have to say, Thus saith the Lord, to give us scripture. Or no, DNC 21.4 is, Thou shalt give heed unto all his words and commandments, which he shall give unto you. And Benson is saying, thus saith the Lord, is not necessary to give a scripture. Which, what more can I say than some people just want to be told what to do regarding every needful thing. Which, of course, if you're familiar with Mormon scripture, is a contradiction. And I suppose, ironically funny. The principle of personal revelation within Mormonism makes this teaching a little tricky in that if your personal revelation contradicts what a living prophet has said, then the words of the living prophet have become more important than a member's own personal experience. Or at least that is what Ezra would like members to do or to believe. However, what this teaching does is create an opportunity for contradiction and doublethink. So that if an active, true-believing member recognizes that, maybe they'll recognize more problems within Mormonism. So to a certain extent, either this teaching makes the principle of personal revelation mute, or personal revelation refuses to accept this teaching. I would argue that the majority of Mormon members do agree with and follow this teaching. But every now and then, there arises expectations which are either excused, ignored, or corrected only if the personal revelation is shared and preached openly. The most recent example is regarding the COVID vaccine and how some people left the church over um, 
the church's recommendation to get the COVID shot, which I don't know, whatever leads you out of Mormonism, fine. Uh, the next point, the prophet tells us what we need to know, not what we want to know. And this supports uh, what Russell Nelson has said, that a prophet is not always popular. This is basically along the same lines. Uh, however, this is a completely manipulative deception. Because another way to look at this is that Benson is saying, whatever the prophet says, you need to figure out how it applies to you and your life and then improve your life in the way that the prophet directs. This point takes away the principle of agency and is focused on the idea of obedience. This principle also removes agency by adding a layer of self-loathing and guilt. I say that because this point assumes that regardless of what the prophet says, all members can apply those words to their lives directly, without exception. And if you know humanity, there's usually always a need for an exception. In other words, you faithful members, you true believing members out there, have to figure out how to make the prophet's word fit your life or you have to come to the conclusion that there's probably something wrong with you. He shares, Benson shares an additional quote from Joseph Smith. The prophet is not limited by men's reasoning. Whatever God requires is right, no matter what it is, although we may not see the reason thereof until long after the events transpire. This is an additionally terrifying point that gives prophets permission to act outside of reasonable behavior, as Joseph Smith was wont to do. So of course he would say something like that. Mormon prophets are not required to follow the constraints of reason, understanding, or logic. Also, it needs to be pointed out the morality and agency just took a backseat to obedience to the prophet, regardless of what he might say or ask of his members. This command requires Mormons to have faith far greater than any logical mind will allow. They must silence their brains and only listen dutifully to the prophet that they will obey without question. It is a relief that Mormons in general, are, in my observation, are smart enough to not take all of these points literally, which perhaps brings into question their level of faith, which I am glad to do. But a great many things have been said from Mormon leaders over the years, and I don't think it's realistic to expect members to live according to all the commandments that have been said over the pulpit. Even in regards to everything the living prophet has said, for sometimes they contradict themselves. And they definitely contradict each other. Uh, it, it's even frequently been pointed out in like the last three general conferences that I can think of. However, there is still potential for danger here. The idea, the idea that a Mormon prophet could just command all Mormon members to go and do something, anything, and they would, probably a decent majority of them, and they would go and do it, should get a 
like all of humanity a little bit of pause about cult leaders, uh, leaders of a high demand religion or group, and just like step back and consider the power that's being wielded by those people. Um, And I think the best way to undo that isn't so much attacking the, the head of that organization, but being able to communicate with members of such organizations and point out what is glaringly obvious to the rest of us. Um, Arguably that is what I'm attempting to do here, but to varying degrees of success. Um, Hold on one moment. I got a mosquito problem. All right. Ezra's next point, the prophet can receive revelation for any matter, temporal or spiritual. And then he shares a supporting quote from the Journal of Discourses. Uh, I guess that would be chapter 10 verses, lines. I'm not sure how the Journal of Discourses is separated. We'll go with verses. Verse 363 to verse 364. Temporal and spiritual things are inseparably connected and will ever and ever will be this strengthens the prophet's necessity and ability to be involved in every aspect of a mormon's mormon member's life because as they have now been stated simply because of this calling as a prophet a mormon prophet is qualified in every subject because he is god's representative so regardless of actual qualifications, the prophet has already been made known. This point now removes all previously assumed limitations. There is nothing outside of a prophet's influence that may be relevant to the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Right? So Ezra established that he doesn't have to be trained or knowledgeable or educated. The Lord will guide but at the same time, when you hear Uchtdorf sharing his pilot stories or you hear Nelson sharing his stories as a heart surgeon and doctor, that's utterly what they're relying on. They've not demonstrated any godly knowledge. They don't have any wisdom beyond their own station. It's a complete farce. For a true believing member, I believe that this is where full-on cult status takes the place of their religious life, where all parts of one's life are not off the table to be dictated by a religious leader, and for the believer to simply go along with the direction given only because of who gave the direction, and for no other reason than because a prophet said so. All right, Benson adds, the prophet may be involved in civic matters. 
Well, of course, Benson added that. He was part of a presidential cabinet. Those who would remove profits from politics would remove God out of the government, which is a gross misunderstanding of the great American experiment. Like, to my understanding, the way I see it, the Constitution is set up so that God is not in the government. You have your freedom of religion, but that's it. Individuals can practice and worship how, where, and what they may, but it need not be forced upon anyone, besides the fact that that is very much what one political party is trying to do, and the other political party does almost nothing. The two-party system is such a amazing crock. Anyway, moving on. Point being, this this broke my brain. I was raised to believe that the Mormon Church remained neutral in all matters of politics. Granted, uh, the Prop 8 campaign in California in 2008 was a huge shelf item for me and definitely shattered that illusion. Uh, in my understanding, this point stands in utter contrast to the article of faith number 12, which states, we believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates, and obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. I feel that point 10 here, as presented in Benson's talk, ignores that phrase in article of faith 12, uh, specifically where it says, obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. It appears that Mormons do not view the separation of church and state to be a good thing, which, like, well, duh, no, they don't. Um, they very much, I mean, I grew up in Texas, so that has its own religious politics. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know that I've ever met a Mormon that wouldn't be okay with prayer in school and other such things. I admit there are scriptures and events in Mormon history that strongly support the point that Benson is making here. So it's not unique to this talk, which again is why even though this is decades later, I still feel that this is relevant and also in some ways reflective of many believing members' experience. Back to the point being made, it simply is not an idea that could be supported by anyone that believes in the need for a strong democracy, which requires a clear separation of church and state. Let's see, this quote is long. I'm not sure where this is coming from. I think I'll get to it at the end, but it says, the proud, educated, and rich... Oh, this is coming from the talk, The 14 Fundamentals of the True Church. So he says... The proud, educated, and rich may struggle to follow the prophet. Oh, that's oh, that's one of his points. Okay. I'll let you know when, when other quotes are coming up. So, so, this is, uh, what, you're true because of who doesn't believe. That's what's so interesting about this, right? Let's, let's use a negative to prove a positive. The proud, educated, and rich may struggle to follow the prophet. Uh, this is not a not-so-subtle way of letting the members of the Mormon church know 
who their enemies are, which is a difficult line to toe because many Mormons are educated and some are very rich. Uh, I mean, again, the Mormon church owns three universities outright and has influence on a few others. Uh, the Mormon, the modern Mormon church has benefited greatly from tithing money of its wealthy members. And frankly, in the past decades, I haven't heard any, well, I haven't heard many talks warning the rich of their wealth as often as I heard talks telling the less wealthy members of the Mormon religion to keep paying their tithing. And that, yeah, that tracks. That's still true today. Uh, this next point, again, like 14 is a long list. He basically already covered this. Uh, the prophet will not be popular. And again, President Nelson has said exactly that also. Uh, surprisingly, without giving President Benson any credit for saying it first, but whatever. Uh, he probably is not the first one to say it, frankly. Especially among the proud, educated, and rich. Obviously. The order of this is so intentional, right? Going from that the previous point to this one. Say something that might offend and then be sure to tell your audience that some people will think you're offensive. The unspoken implication being that you are not offensive. It's just the assumption made by those that find the prophet offensive because they're prideful sinners or educated sinners or wealthy sinners that just hate the Mormon church because they're sinners, which is why they don't follow the prophet the way that all the obedient members of the church do. <sighs> Next point, the prophet and his counselors are important. Shocking. Like, these last few points, he he's just... He's really drawing a line, I feel, right? He's really showing, like... If you don't follow in line with the other points and you match any of this stuff or people notice, like, again, Mormonism doesn't do, well, maybe not again, but as a point, Mormonism doesn't do shunning, say, to the uh, very official extent that, say, the Jehovah's Witnesses do. But I feel like this is a decent example of, of how shunning could be an attitude adopted by active Mormon members towards those that are maybe a little more nuanced or open in their questioning. Um, follow the prophet, he says, follow the prophet and be blessed, reject them and suffer. Later quoting Brigham Young, you cannot destroy the appointment of a prophet of God, but you can cut the thread that binds you to the prophet of God and sink yourselves to hell, which is the Mormon equivalent of you send yourself to hell. That's what that is. Ezra ends his talk with a warning or a threat, depending on your perspective. Essentially, he says that if you are not 100% obedient in following the prophet and his counselors, then you are damning yourself by becoming your own false prophet, by cherry-picking which commandments to follow. Besides the fact that like all fucking Mormons do that. 
This feels similar to when I hear people describe atheists as being their own god. Granted, I understand that there are atheists out there that describe themselves as their own god. But you know what? We need some confidence when leaving our own religion, and that's a pretty great way to do it. Um, I'm not fully on board with that perspective as an atheist. Maybe that's reflective of my confidence levels. But anyway, I digress. Um, I understand how that idea of being your own god might be empowering. From a certain perspective, it's not my perspective. Sorry, I know I'm being redundant. I find it insulting, though, that there always needs to be a God involved in everyone's life. There always has to be a higher power. There always has to be some unexplained miracles that you can corner some non-believer with and just be like, see, you can't explain everything. And it's like, I don't need to. That is unnecessary. I can live life with not knowing shit. I've done it for my whole life. I need no God to be great, and I need no God to be terrible. I can do it all on my own. So that concludes my critique of Ezra Benson's talk, The 14 Fundamentals of the True Church. And I appreciate anyone that stuck through to the end of this. Doing a podcast was meant to be a more collaborative effort. Uh, but it quickly became a little too much for me. I tried to start it earlier in the summer of 2023, and my schedule just doesn't really allow for it. So I'm going to do these individual episodes whenever I get a chance. So I'll post things whenever I can. And I appreciate anyone that listens, right? Because I'm basically just screaming out into the void. I would like to hear from anyone uh, what your thoughts, opinions are on all this. Um, I am, but I am glad to continue to share mine. All you wonderful people have a great day and I will talk to you next time.